We're starting a new series of sermons today, um, picking up where we left off back in the fall. A couple of years ago, in our sermons, we preached through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Then last year in the summer and then into the fall, we preached through Genesis 12 all the way up to 24, the life of Abraham. And starting today, we're going to go through the life of Jacob um, over the next couple of months. Genesis chapter 25, this passage that Joetta read to us, starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. In other words, it's re- this redundancy means don't miss the point. If we're going to talk about Ab- Isaac's family, remember who fathered Isaac. Remember where this falls in the plot line. Remember that this is Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. That, that's what it does. That's what the passage does. It, it, it says, oh, I'm going to tell you about a- Isaac's life. But wait a minute. Who was his daddy? And then once again, who was his daddy? There's this emphasis in the literature that this is Abraham's son. Now, who is Abraham? Well, back in chapter 12, God chose Abraham out of all the people of the earth. And he promised Abraham that through Abraham, God was going to fix the world, solve the problem. What's the problem? Well, God made this world to be good, but it's broken. God made us to have deep, intimate authentic, healthy relationships with each other and with him and with creation. And all of that has been mixed up. The story of the Bible is the story of God dealing with evil. The story of God not letting the world go, but getting it back on track in his good plans and purposes. So who is Isaac? Isaac is Abraham's son. What is this family? This is the family. The central family in God's plan to heal the world. Now, what's it like to live in this chosen family? This blessed family? This family that is, that is showered with God's affection? Well, look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Well, that's what it's like to be in God's good graces, right? You have a problem, you ask God to help you, and he fixes it. Just like that. She could see two verses. A problem, a prayer, a solution. Boom, boom, boom. But then look at verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth. Now go back to verse 20. How old was he when they got married? 40 40 years old when they got married, 60 when they finally had a baby. It's not that simple. They wrestled with infertility and all of its emotional pain and confusion and heaviness for 20 years. Janelle and I tried for several years to get pregnant. And it was tough. Our our struggle with this lasted about two years. And then it changed. (laughs) But can you imagine one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, ten years, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty years of suffering with infertility? I'm freezing. Are you guys freezing? Can someone deliver us? 
someone who knows how to handle Gil, she's all yours, my friend. Oh, I'm about to shake beyond holding my notes here. So, look, we've got three. All right, Zeke, Gil, Ed, two engineers and a um, carpenter. Between them. Thank you, guys. So this is the family. This is God's central family. This is the pinnacle family. And they're suffering. Why is something so painful and confusing as infertility in the middle of this family? How can something so soul-vexing as barrenness that lasts for 20 years fit inside of God's plan to make all things new. And notice, this isn't just any old garden variety hardship. Not only is infertility one of the unique sufferings, but in this situation, it's amplified. Because in the last chapter, in Genesis chapter 24, if you remember back to the fall, Rebecca left everything to join this family. When she found out who this family was, when she recognized God's imprint, God's hand, God's favor on this family, she, like Abraham, at enormous sacrifice, left everything. To follow Christ. She did exactly what Jesus in the New Testament invites us to do. To be willing to love him more than anything else. So she had done that. So Rebecca's bitterness, her her barrenness here. It's not just infertility. It's but God, I left everything To join this family. And when I joined this family. At the heart of your promise to me. Was children. So then. Her husband prays. Different than his father. Who Abraham when he faced infertility. Resorted to a concubine. But Jacob. But Isaac. Isaac doesn't. He learned from his father. To trust in God. So he prays. And he faithfully and patiently and persistently for 20 years begs God to keep his promise. Reminds God of his promise. And Rebecca gets pregnant. Finally. Can you imagine the happiness? Right? 20 barren years of of waiting. And then she's pregnant. But then we get verse 22. The children struggled within her. Totally pansy translation. That's way too tame. The word struggle, it means literally, it's, a unique, it's an odd word. It's rarely used in the Bible. It means to crack in pieces. To break or bruise or crush. In Judges chapter 9 verse 53, to smash skulls together. So a good translation is the children smashed each other inside of her. See, that's why Rebecca says, is it worth even living? What does it take for a woman that's waited two decades to contemplate suicide? This was a painful, difficult pregnancy. So painful, it darkened out all of the goodness. She's driven to despair. 
So like her husband, she turns to God. She goes to God and God answered her prayer. But his answer is no consolation. He says, Rebecca, this is just the beginning. Your suffering, the fighting in your womb, it will not stop. The war that's going on inside of you will continue. It'll be there at delivery and it'll follow right on into the life of these children. Look at verse 23. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And so Rebecca said, if that's it, why me? What did I do to deserve this? And can I just tell you, she didn't do anything to deserve this. Don't swoop in with some doctrine of the fall. She didn't deserve this. Here is righteous Rebecca saying a legitimate, accurate question. Why? Why me? Well, let's continue with the story. Let's see these children of the promise. In verse 25, Esau came out of the womb covered in hair. And he grows into a strapping boy and he becomes a man's man, a hunter, a man of the field, a man of the outdoors. And in verse 26, we get Jacob, the quiet one. He likes mama and the tent and the cookbooks. And what does this lead to? This decades-long battle with infertility, um, finally being solved with a pregnancy that gets so difficult, this mother contemplates suicide. What does it lead to? Well, it leads to what so many of us can understand. It leads to parents that are drawn into into the immaturity and dysfunction of the children. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Have you ever seen a marriage fall apart after the death of a child? Have you ever seen a marriage shattered by the conflict of the children? Isaac picks Esau. He loves the strapping, strong son. That's my boy. And Rebecca, she's taken with Jacob, her tender little lamb. So Esau grows up with his father's affection, but not his mother's love. And Jacob grows up with his mother's tender love, but not his father's respect. Strike close to home. God's design is that our hearts would be nurtured under wise and generous and gracious love. But so few of us have had that. And now I'm the father of five children and I'm the pastor of this congregation and I can tell you so few of us give it. Our hearts were created to be nurtured in the tender, caring hands of strong and wise parenting but few of us got it and few of us give it. And where does this lead? Look with me at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau, daddy's boy, came in from the field and he was exhausted. And he said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. It's, it, it sounds like the word red in Hebrew. So here's Jacob. He's weak and weary from, from the hard work of hunting. And the hunting hasn't gone well and he's famished. And then the way the Hebrew reads is quite striking. It's literally... Not let me eat, but let me gulp down. 
That verb, gulp down, it, most of the time in the Bible and in the ancient Near Eastern literature, this word is used with the feeding of cattle, with stuffing them with food. And on top of that, the way Esau identifies the stew, literally, let me gulp down this red, red. Crude language. It's guttural slang. Look, if you could read Hebrew, reading this, it would be like reading a Shakespearean play in Elizabethan English and then somebody breaks out into a New York cabbie accent. I've never read anything like this in the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. It's the only time I've ever encountered this. The the language of Hebrew is often high Hebrew. It's elevated speech. But here is Esau. What's going on? Why this jarring, this jarring language? I think the narrator is using his art to show us that he, Esau's like an animal. He's a man of his appetites. He's driven by his animalistic base instinct. And then there's Jacob's response. Sell me your birthright now. <laughs> wow. Brotherly affection at its best. <laughs> but, in, but what we get here, instead of what any commonly decent person would do with someone starving, what we get is Jacob the heel grabber. That's what Jacob means. Grabs the heel. Jacob the heel catcher. And he will not simply give away his food. Oh no. He's going to get something for himself in return. And so with a callous calculation. And a hard fisted plan. He insists that Esau exchange. His firstborn's right to the inheritance for food. He insists that Esau surrender precious long term blessing. For the immediate appeasement of his hunger. This is not the first time these two brothers have been to the rodeo. How does Esau respond? We'll look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Of what use is the total wealth of Abraham given to Isaac passed on to me? Of what use is the right standing in the line of God's favor and blessing? The thing that my mother left everything for. What use is that when I'm hungry? Do you see? He's an idiot. (laughs) He really is. Utterly indifferent to what anybody watching him would say. Don't do this. Are you insane? So how does Jacob respond to his brother's stupidity? Swear to me at once. Just three quick curt words in Hebrew. Swear me now. Can you see him just standing over his brother? Holy cow. Pun intended. Hungry, you get it? Holy cow. Anyway. Trying to help y'all keep up now. All right. So what does Esau do? Well, in his amazing wisdom, he says, okay. Then verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Wait a minute. I thought the the deal was for the stick, meaty stew. And then he gives him like Beyonce's diet. You've been following the news? Vegetarian stuff. He's a trickster. You should get to that point and be disgusted with both of them. 
And look how it ends. Look how devious heel catcher Jacob and ridiculous foolish Esau. Look how it ends. Esau ate, drank, rose, left. Four quick words in Hebrew. Ate, drank, stood, left. Suddenly the loquacious Esau, who I thought he was dying but had room for lots of talking, is struck silent. And his silence is eerie because bitterness, bitterness needs, leaves no room for talk. And then one of the only times in the entire book of Genesis that the narrator gives us a moral evaluation. Very rarely. The book of Genesis, the, action, the characters of the actions are meant to be judged by the reader. One of the only times in the entire book, the narrator intrudes and says, Esau despised his birthright. So here's God's chosen family. Wouldn't you like to be a part of this? You've got foolish, shallow, impulsive greed. And you've got calculating, opportunistic, mean greed. Which is better? One is a fool who lives for his stomach. He's a slave to his desires. And the other is a conniver who lives for his stock portfolio. One doesn't care at all about God's plan and his blessing for him and his family and the nations. He doesn't care. He'd rather have soup now than remember God's promises and tune his heart into God's big plan for the remaking of all things. Just feed me now. And the other is self-absorbed, mischievous. He's a rascal who will heartlessly exploit his brother's moment of weakness. And, and, And instead of looking at God's grace in his family as something that blesses and enlarges his heart, he looks at it as a ground for self-promotion. Behold, the adult children of suffering, division, and spiritual stupidity. Here they are. And you and I, we are them. You and I, we're raising them. Look at Esau. What a stupid, stupid decision. It's totally ridiculous to trade something so remarkable for a bowl of soup. Do you look at Esau and see your own immorality? Do you see how irreligious you are? Is this a picture of your own lax, undisciplined faith? Your own sinful fixation on your bodily drives? And then there's Jacob. How many times have have I relished some kickback from God out of pure self-interest instead of the sheer privilege of knowing God and making him known? What are we to do with this? Well, over the last week, I've had the twin privilege of reading and studying and praying my way through this passage as I pastored you, as I prayed for you and talked with you and heard several of your confessions. And as I've done that, Over and over, my heart and my mind and my imagination have been struck by two treasures for our church. One has to do with when we really disappoint God. And the other has to do when God disappoints us. 
First, when we fail God. Are you immature and hard-hearted? Are you immoral? Are you damaged? Are you surrounded like this family by failure, failing at the hand that God has dealt to you, totally messing it up, going nowhere fast, neither fixing your circumstances nor nor nurturing your heart in goodness? Maybe you think that the best you can do is be second string for God and his family. That God's gracious plan to redeem all things and and to bless Harrisonburg. Maybe you think that you've messed up and your family is so messed up that you can't really be a part of that. But do you see in this passage, God tosses aside the fact that we don't deserve to be loved and he loves us anyway. This is God's chosen family. Look at this family. Are you really this bad? Reading this, we're compelled to ask, is God going to be faithful in the face of such unworthy people? Is God going to keep blessing? Is God going to keep his promise? Look, forget the fact that you, you know the end of the story. What if you didn't know the end of the story? What if you're just reading along? And you see, oh, the world got really messed up. And then God said, I'm going to fix it through this family. And you get to this point. Wouldn't you do exactly like in the movie Noah recently? Wouldn't you be like Noah and say, no way? Isn't that what you're supposed to be doing here? Aren't you supposed to be saying, no, wait a minute. God's got a problem on his hands. How can the solution be worse than the problem? You know what people do dealing with cancer when that's the case? They refuse the chemo. When the solution is worse than the problem, shouldn't God just say, good thing I'm all powerful, Let's, let's, let's go another way. Is God going to keep his promise? Or God's promise is contingent. Will God's promise to this family outshine the strained marriage, the tensions and conflicts, the crisis after crisis, the horrible parenting, the tragic circumstances, the selfishness and pride and lust and anger? What can God do with this heel of a man? Exactly how resilient is God? Will he overcome barrenness, not just in the womb, but what about in the family, in the heart, in the relationships? And in chapter 26, verse 1, there was a famine in the land. What about the barrenness of the land? How Exactly how determined is God to stick with his plan? Is there any guarantee at this point that this family is going to survive? And then we get to chapter 26. And sure enough, look at chapter 26, verse 2. Verse 3, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for you and to your offspring. I will give these lands and I will establish the oath. I swore to Abraham, your father, I will multiply your offspring. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Sure enough, the promises which called this family into being are heard again. Barrenness is met with a reaffirmation of the promise. 
God, the true God. See, when we read the Bible, we learn lots of things. One of the things we learn is what God is like. And what we see here is that the true God cannot be silenced by stupidity and meanness and anger, by sin, by corruption. He cannot be silenced or chased away by your failures. Isn't that wonderful? I was so glad after hearing some of you this week and knowing you and praying for you, I was so glad that the God I stand before on your behalf will not be silenced by our mess-ups. He will not run from our scandals and our failures. He will not bow down and surrender before empty wombs and shattered families. So God holds this family. Now listen, are you trusting God to hold you and your family? Do you know, do you believe that it is God who is bigger than your mess-ups? Listen, when you are overwhelmed with your failures, are you more overwhelmed that God keeps his promises? Do you believe? Are you totally dependent on God to keep his promises? Martin Luther said that in his darkest days when he doubted everything and he was barely holding on to his faith by his fingertips, he would always say to himself, Luther, you have been baptized. Do you do that? Do you believe that you, that your family, that this church is not fated to go the way of our weaknesses? The work of God in this world rests on the faithfulness of God. Look at the front of our worship guide. This wonderful passage of scripture from Paul's second letter to Timothy. Memorize this verse. And when you are overwhelmed... By the darkness and the failures around you. Meditate on this verse. And when you're completely put out with the church. Meditate on this verse. And when you're in the depths of despair. Remember, remember. If we are faithless. He remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. Even when we're faithless to God. He is faithful to us. The work of God in this world rests on the faithfulness of God to the people of his promise. That's the first lesson I've been struck by. There are days that I go home and I'm overwhelmed with the burdens of our church. One day I go home like that this week and I'm utterly tired. And my wife tells me a story that's going on in our church. And I said, you know, don't tell me that at the end of the day. I can't handle this. I'm telling you that when I'm overwhelmed with my life and with your lives, we have got to learn to believe more in the faithfulness of God than our own unfaithfulness. That's the first lesson. And the second lesson, the second treasure that has been a blessing to me this week and I hope will be a blessing to you is this. When we suffer at the hand of God, and it is often quite severe, it is also a great mercy. And I know this can sound cliche, and you know this applies to our children, don't you? 
when Janelle and I love our children in a way that hurts for them? How much larger and wiser and kinder and better is God at parenting you than you are your kids? Please, please open her womb. Okay, war inside. Favoritism, division, strife. And then you get to 20, chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. Don't you just want to laugh? I mean, exactly how does this do a family that is about to sink under the weight of its internal dysfunction to go through an economic crisis? Just by the way, does, um, does debt and economic hardship bless your marriage or test your marriage? On top of all this internal chaos, when the family is strained to the breaking point, you lose your job. Economic ruin. Here's a family that just goes from one crisis to another. And what family is this? Remember where the whole thing started. Remember where it starts and where it ends in chapter 26, verse 3 through 5. It's framed with a reminder, this is the family of promise. This is what it's like to be held in the love of God. So the narrator forces us to read all of this suffering through that lens. And as we read through the life of Jacob over the next couple of months, we'll see what, we, what he probably couldn't see at the time. We'll see that in the midst of all of this, God is actually blessing him. We, the reader, can see it. Some of you in your life, I see it. It reminds me of something C.S. Lewis said in his remarkable little book of Grief Observed. Actually, Kevin reminded me of this this morning on his way out the office. He told me about it. Uh, Grief Observed. It's a little book uh, C.S. Lewis wrote after his wife died. And it comes out of his journals, of his own struggle with faith in the face of suffering. And listen to this one part. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out its quality. He already knows it. I didn't. In this trial, he makes me occupy the dock, the witness box, and the bench all at once. He already knows that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize it was to knock it down. Maybe you think suffering and hardship means God is against you. And being blessed by God means you don't suffer. St. Ignatius said, There are very few persons who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves entirely into his hands and let themselves be formed by his grace. A thick and shapeless tree trunk would never believe it could become a statue admired as a miracle of sculpture and would never submit itself to the chisel of the sculptor who sees by his genius what he can make of it. Many people do not understand that they could become saints if they would let themselves be formed by the grace of God if they did not ruin his plans by resisting the work he wants to do. So several years ago, five and a half years ago, actually five years ago right now, five years ago on April the 25th, I had a breakdown. I've told many of you about this. And as I was recovering from this, there was this distinct moment. I'm riding a tractor. I'm bush hogging a field, trying to recover. 
There was this distinct moment when I sensed God saying to me, better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And reminding me that Christ is my best friend. There's a friend that lays down his life for us. So if Christ is my best friend and better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy, suddenly in the midst of all of my brokenness, I sense God saying to you, Aubrey, you can trust my wounds. Not just my wounds that I have, but when I wound you. You can trust. Suffering in the hands of God. Whether you got there by your own stupidity or it was some dastardly trick of DNA. Suffering in the hands of God can be enormously productive. It has the potential to bring out of us the image of God. I'm not saying that we should seek suffering. The suffering I'm talking about is intrinsic to the Christian life. To believe the gospel is to pick up a cross. When you're suffering at the hand of God, when prayer and worship and scripture become an arid wasteland and all the consolation in the love of God seems lost in that desolate and dark night of the soul, when you are in your own Golgotha, will you take God's abandonment of you and turn it into your abandonment to God? In our suffering... We must learn to convert our feeling of being abandoned by God into an actual abandoning of ourselves to God. So when you drink the cup of this type of suffering, let me encourage you to remember the story of Rebecca's barrenness because this birth through a barren woman should lead you to remember a whole line of suffering through the Bible. Because this miraculous birth, God's miraculous giving a son that he promised to a barren woman fits a long list of miraculous births in the Bible. And all those miraculous births in the Bible culminate in the miraculous birth of God's own son being born of a virgin. And he lives a perfect and pure life. And what does he do? He refuses to be a heel grasper. He refuses to greedily grasp all the rights and the privileges that were his as the firstborn son. And in a great act of reversal, God's son becomes barren on a cross. And in his barrenness, he takes your sin and my sin and our guilt and all of our screwing up and all of our stupidity and all of our failures. He takes them all. And he takes Isaac's sin and Isaac's guilt and Jacob's trickiness and his cold-heartedness and Esau's stupid... He takes it all upon himself and he hung on the cross like the barren, wicked, disobedient son. Why did he do that? Why the great reversal? Why the faithful son taking on the barrenness? Why did he do all that? So that all the rights and the privileges of the firstborn son could go to the others. In an act of faithfulness to God and not trickiness. He did that so that it would fall on you and me. All of his inheritance. Who wouldn't love a God like this? As Tolkien said, write a better story and I'll convert to your religion. 
The most amazing thing in the world. God made great promises to Abraham and to his children forever. And if you and if I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, these promises belong to us and to our children. Wow! For the sake of your children, convert. God made good on his oath. He swore to Abraham by sending his own son for you and me. So you and I can sing the song that we start the service with. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Jesus stands ready to save you. And he is full of pity and love and power. And even though all of this junk is true about you and me, he will embrace you. He will embrace me even though we're lost and ruined by the fall. He knows your family. He knows how you've messed up. He knows that some of us have ruined our children. And there's no going back on that. He will embrace us in his arms. Do you believe it? That Jesus is the embodiment of the Father's love conquering the power of sin and guilt and condemnation against us. It's been done. It's erased forever. And Jesus will embrace us in his arms and the Father will embrace us and the Spirit will embrace us because Jesus took our barrenness on himself. There is no other hope. There is no other place to flee except to the open arms of our dear Savior. Now let's turn to him in prayer. And then let's come to him at the table. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please stand.